Man, I love that music. It gets my brain going. <laughs> and we're in episode 38, Cell Transplant Therapy. I am Dr. Christopher Pisano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannat. And this is the Stem Cell Podcast. What up, Yos? How you doing? You forgot to mention our guest, Dr. Lorenz Studer. The uh, He's sort of like... Let's see, we both came out of his lab, so he's sort of the daddy of the podcast, too, right? <laughs> yeah, he's the daddy of the podcast. That's right. Our guest today is Dr. Lorenz Studer. For everyone in the industry, you probably know who Lorenz is. For those who do not, he's uh, you're going to find out. He's really he's really a big fish. He's, he's really, you know, taken uh, the possibility of using stem cells for cell transplantation therapy to the next level. Uh, and he's close, you know, he's as close as anyone else in the world of having a, a, a product in this case for Parkinson disease as a cell transplant therapy. And Yosef's Yosef's been in the lab and working on it. I was there briefly and, and, and did, did some work on the project. So it'll be nice to have the, uh, academic dad on the show today yeah. and to, to let everybody know about what's going on. So yeah. obviously a great show, um, and a great guest. I, I describe um, Lorenz as uh, he's probably the smartest person I know, but he's definitely one of the nicest. So uh, he's great to work with. And yeah, uh, and I, I'm so fortunate because I got to work and train with two really brilliant but very humble and kind humans. Yeah, and that's Sally Dr. Temple Sally Temple is my PhD advisor, and Lorenz Studer is my postdoc advisor. And they're really, you know, they're really gentle. They're very, very smart and uh, just really great people that you kind of want to hang out with uh, uh, when the science is done. So, so glad to have him on. You know, um, we are the Stem Cell Podcast, the official podcast of ISSCR the International Society for Stem Cell Research. Get on there, register for the meeting, everybody. I know a lot of people I talk to are registering, and I already, you know, Yosef and I were registered and booked our flights. So get out there and register early. And um, by the time this hits, I, I think your poster abstracts are done. So hope everyone got their posters in, and uh, Yosef and I will find you, and you guys will find us, and, uh, you know, come over and do a little interview. Uh, I was talking to uh, Anthony this morning, Yosef, uh, for everyone out there, Anthony uh, Fasano Silent helps partner. us with the podcast. All the stuff that you guys see um, on the website and all that stuff, Anthony really helps us with. So what what he's done, you know, he put together a survey, and it's going to be on the website, stemcellpodcast.com forward slash um, survey. And we would like everybody, to, all the listeners, to just take a second and go on there and fill it out. And it's just going to be questions about the show. You know, tell us which. You know, what do you like? Do you like this? What segment do you like the best? What would you want to see? It just gives us more feedback so we can help guide the show and make it better. We're always trying to make it better. Uh, more resources or something like that. Uh, and what we'll do is just to uh, you know in, entice you to do that. We're going to give away two fifty dollar uh, gift cards, probably to Amazon, and we're just going to randomly select two people who fill out the survey. So. Nice. Uh, really, it would really help us out, everybody. So stemcellpodcast.com um, uh, slash survey and fill it out. And while you're on stemcellpodcast.com, please sign up for uh, – put on, put your email uh, and your name on the list so we can send you these resources. Uh, Yo, so last time we asked people to do that, there was a really big response. We got a lot of people opting in. So that's great. Keep them coming. Go to stemcellpodcast.com for all the info and keep your comments coming in. Review us on iTunes. You know, just just keep the feedback coming in. Um, yeah, they, and you're also still in the running for a free T-shirt if uh, you sign up on there. So gotta we'll get be giving free those T-shirt. Out. Yep. Everyone's got to get that T-shirt. And I'm talking. Listen, if there are any of you investigators out there giving talks or any postdocs giving talks at ISSCR this year, we give we love to give you a free T-shirt if you wear the T-shirt while you're giving your talk. Uh, I was trying to talk my buddy Paul into uh, 
Paul Tizar into wearing the T-shirt while he's getting accepting his fancy award. Oh, but nice. I think he, I think he, I think he wants, I think he needs to be a little fancy, and he doesn't want to wear the T-shirt. <laughs> so he asked if we can make him a stem cell podcast tie. And I was, t- I saw maybe, and then I'm thinking to myself, wow, man, we're custom making ties for Paul Tazar. <laughs> Jeez, Paul, I'll, what are you doing out there, man? I'll wear that tie. Yeah, I know. I just <laughs> make make a couple. We'll all wear them anyway. So check us out, guys. Keep keep get the feed. Keep bringing the feedback in. The next gen conference is live. Registration is live in Saratoga, New York, in May. Use the code podcast. You'll get a discount on registration, and we hope to see everyone there. So we should, without further ado. Yos, we'll do the uh, the uh, science roundup brought to you by Thermo Fisher. You know they have um, um, they, we have in contact with Thermo a lot, and they give us these ideas and they give us things that they would like you know us to, to let you all know about. So they have some new products for cardiomyocyte differentiation. Yosef, we talked to Christine Mummery about cardiomyocytes on the on the last episode. Uh, so they have some new products that help differentiate and derive these cells. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you want information, you can go to the, our website, stemcellpodcast.com, click on the banner right there, and it'll take you to find out. So, uh, Yost, round it up, man. All right. What's our favorite journal? PNAS. Yes, PNAS study about a smart insulin that automatically adjusts blood sugar in a diabetic mouse model. It's called ins. PBA-F, and it works for a minimum of 14 hours, and unlike other protein-based barriers or gel-coated you know, uh, delivery methods, this was created by a chemical, uh, chemically modifying the insulin directly so that it consists of a long-acting insulin derivative that has a chemical moiety, that's the PBA part, and uh, that's added to one end, and under normal conditions, it binds to serum proteins that circulate in the bloodstream, which blocks its activity. But when blood sugar levels are high, glucose sugars bind the PBA, and this releases the insulin. So it's a pretty cool uh, method of delivering it automatically uh, so you don't have to do all those multiple injections throughout the day. That is cool. By the way, I love the word moiety. Yeah, right? Isn't that a great word? word? That's a great word. What about for, what about for a kid? <laughs> moiety know. Gannat? Yeah, no? <laughs> moiety. That's great. <laughs> uh, there's a nature geoscience study of seismic waves between 1992 and 2012. Uh, found, they found basically iron crystals in the innermost regions of the inner core point east to west. Whereas iron crystals in the inner core's outer regions point north to south, and they deduce that there must be a distinct inner core, inner inner core that takes up half of the diameter of the whole inner core. So it's not just this ball of si- solid iron that we learned as kids. Um, so you can find that in nature geoscience. I, I just remember core, mantle, and crust. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I remember. That's all you need to remember. Um, <laughs> there was a science. This was really cool. Science Science Translational Medicine uh, paper about this 15-minute blood test that works with the iPhone. Uh, it's got this little dongle attachment for the iPhone. It's like a microfluidic chamber that you just like prick yourself and add the little blood. And it could test for HIV and syphilis in, in 15 minutes. And you could do it at home and it works. So. Dude, you, you know what I'm thinking, right? This is so devious and shady. So like if you're with a partner and you don't know them... Yeah. 
just get you like can like roll. pre-screen them for like for STDs right there. Fifteen minute so like, blood test before we enter into this contract. Can you please uh, give me a sample of your blood? Wow, Fifteen that's, minutes. That's some romantic foreplay. That is some there. romantic <laughs> guys, guys and girls. Don't don't do that out there. That won't get you very far. <laughs> there was a cell study uh, defining the molecular mechanism by which insulin normally inhibits production of glucose in the liver and why this process stops working in patients with type two diabetes. Ultimately leading to hyperglycemia. So insulin does this by inhibiting the breakdown of fat, which in, results in a reduction in a in hepatic acetyl CoA, which is critical in regulating the conversion of amino acids and lactate to glucose. So they also found that reversal of this process via inflammation in fatty tissue leads to an increase in hepatic glucose production and hyperglycemia in a fat ro- high fat rodent diet. So you can find that over in cell. Defining uh, how type two diabetes and inflammation all that works. So, I thought that was cool. Um, there was a JCI Journal of Clinical Investigation study showing that a fraction of individuals who developed severe emphysema have mutations in one of the genes responsible for maintaining telomeres. Those little. Uh, shoelace tips at the end of DNA. Uh, so TERT is the gene. And they found that, uh, there, there's a, this is basically an, another risk factor for developing emphysema. So, uh, smokers with TERT mutations, beware. You might, uh, may be at risk for, for more emphysema. Um, <clears throat> There was a cell system study. I don't know if you saw this, uh, of a pathogen map of New York City subways. Did you see that? They showed that a majority of the 637 known bacterial, viral, fungal, and animal species that were detected were non-pathogenic and represent normal bacteria present on human skin on the human skin and body. However, about half of the sequences of DNA they collected cannot be identified to match any known organism. Did you see this? Yeah, I know. So what the hell were these things, man? Like, <laughs> well, I guess there's no registry for some of the stuff. I mean, we don't know all. We haven't sequenced everything out there. But yeah, uh, it's, it's kind of scary. And some they also found sequences of the bubonic plague, which I, I guess it was in like the actual bubonic plague. But like, you know how, you know, yeah, organisms yeah, yeah. can swap genes. There's like some traces of bubonic plague in there. And it's kind of weird. <laughs> like you guys, you can go and you can click on the map. You can click on each subway station and it'll go in and it'll tell you what bacteria or crap they've identified in there. And they'll be like organisms related to pizza or something. Yeah, like I that. saw like, that. To, it's there funny. Was yeast. You should check it out. It's kind of funny. Yeah, yeast for pizza and all sorts of stuff. So um, there was a cell metabolism study where researchers discovered a hormone that decreases. Oh, man, I'm on insulin today. Decreases insulin production during starvation that was found in fruit flies, but also exists in humans. Uh, so this is the first time, uh, first insulin regulating hormone called limostatin or limostatin and found in starving fruit flies. And when knocked out, they have high levels of circulating insulin and thus lower levels of, uh, sugar and more fat cells. Uh, the human counterpart is called neuromedin U and, hmm. uh, both it and limostatin are called 
decretins, uh, which is the opposite of an incretin, which are expressed in the gut after a meal to stimulate insulin. So these were sort of uh, philosophized in the past, but now they've actually found it. Um, uh, I know we're going to talk about this later. There was a UK uh, approved the three parent parent babies. I don't like that title i think yeah, it should be i know i i have the, the first thing to talk about on mine we can talk it's 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 an interesting thing i don't know what side i fall on to be honest yeah, it should be at least 2.01 parent babies because like that third parent's just contributing like 0.01 percent of the genome i know just i know i don't like that title but anyhow uh, that should be good news for parents with that rare mitochondrial dysfunction. Uh, neuron studies showing that measuring fMRI activity of the amygdala in response to angry or fearful, fearful faces could predict whether individuals would react to stressful life events with anxiety or depression as early as four years before these reactions occur. So they're not sure if the excess amygdala activity was the causative factor in vulnerability to stress or reaction to stressful events. So you could predict huh. how people, you know, will react later in life uh, just by measuring the the amygdala, that little almond shaped piece of the brain. Uh, there was a journal. Did you called- say almonds or almond? Almond. Almond? <laughs> yeah, almond. People call almonds. <laughs> That's weird. Uh, there was a journal of cultural heritage study. Uh, researchers mapped all 61 tattoos of the Atsi, that ice man I keep bringing up. This 5,300-year-old glacial, mun- glacial mummy, uh, or glacial, as the Europeans say, glacial. Um, so using non-invasive imaging technique, they borrowed from the art world. They can capture light at different wavelengths and ranging from infrared to ultraviolet and this guy's tattoos were all black and some of them as long as four centimeters but unlike uh modern tattooing methods which use needles they were made by rubbing charcoal into fine incisions so this guy was like tattooed up back in the day uh so yeah um it up yeah uh there was a nature methods article about a method called real time deformability cytometry so rtdc which enables continuous on the fly mechanical screening of hundreds of cells per second which is 10 times faster than current flow cytometry techniques this will help fingerprint uh the different types of cells in a drop of blood uh because you know white blood cells are one one thousandth of the cells in blood and uh this is faster and better quantitative assessment of um of the cells and uh, just a couple more real quick there was a nature neuro reset the biological clock uh, using optogenetics in mice by stimulating or suppressing neurons in the suprachiasmic nucleus via I love that nucleus yeah, yes the SCN uh, they used uh, two strains of nocturnal and diurnal mice and they were able to show that it's possible to reset the mouse's circadian rhythms without uh, using uh, external light uh, to as a stimulant and uh finally there was a molecular nutrition and food research study finding that a compound in green tea may trigger a cycle that kills oral 
cancer cells in uh, in healthy and leaves healthy cells alone. Uh, it's called EGCG, this epigallocatechin chin three gallate. <laughs> so EGCG does this by forming reactive oxygen species or ROSs in cancer cells, which leads to damaged mitochondria and uh, program cell death. And they also found that CERT, the you know the sirtuin CERT three yep. uh, is critical to this process. Process and EGCG uh, selectively turns it off in cancer cells. So drink wow. your green tea Dude, out green there. Green tea, man. Yeah, what can you? Should, do? We should just bathe in green tea. I feel like you know, <laughs> yeah. want to help us out. So what do you got on your end? All right, so let me start here. Some stem cell stuff. You know, I'm looking for it and I can't find it. There was another paper, and I'm going to try to get it and put it up on the website. There was another paper describing instability of growth factors. So you know. I'm, and I'm going to use this actually in a way to to plug something because because you know I guess I have this microphone and I'm going to do that. But the paper was just I forget where it was, but they were talking about how unstable growth factors are. Everybody out there who grows stem cells know that you or cells they require growth factors to grow them and propagate them. But when you put them in media and then put them in the incubator, they degrade rapidly. Like FGF is the one that we work with a lot, and it's, re- it's required for self renewal of stem cells. That thing by four hours is about eighty percent gone. So your your stem cells are seeing this crazy up and down. Um, and so there was another paper describing instability of of of, of growth factors. Anyway, the plug real quick is that, you know, um, for full disclosure, I, I helped start a company, Yosef, and Yosef knows this, to, to take, yeah, it's like time-release growth factors. They're called uh, stem beads, and what we do is we put the growth factor in this, in this kind of uh, polymer, and it will time-release growth factor and feed your cells for you. And so what happens is you'll get actually better cell, self, self-renewal because it's not seeing an unstable signal. And you don't have to feed the cells every day. So for everybody out there growing pluripotent cells, if, you keep, if you're still feeding your cells every day, you don't have to, and your cells will not suffer. In fact, they'll be better. So go to stemculture.com. Uh, that's stemculture.com. And check out stem beads. And if you use podcast, you'll get a discount on your purchase. Could, so that's my quick plug. I think your motto uh, should be like, reclaim your weekends. <laughs> yeah, like just there's no need for you to feed every day and come in on the weekends anymore. I promise you, your cells will be better and you'll save time, you'll save money. Everybody wins. So go to stemculture.com. All right, so if I, I'll find that paper and I'll put it up. Um, let's get into the mitochondrial thing. Um, a lot of stuff on the news about this. Basically, let's see if I can explain it, Yos. Um so mitochondrial DNA is di- is 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 kind of different, right? Yost, the nuclear DNA. I mean, I don't really know. There's how only to thirty six genes on there. It's it's very small genome, but it's its own genome, right? And mitochondria are like the powerhouse of the cell. They're responsible for all our redox. They help us breathe. They they help us do everything. It's really the, what's why they call it the powerhouse of the cell. So there are some dis- disorders where the mother will pass. Who has a mitochondrial deficit? She will pass this mitochondrial DNA onto the child and the child will inherit this mitochondrial disease and it could be fatal. So what this UK parliament just approved or is in like one of the steps to approve is this three parent mitochondrial gene therapy. So what, what happens is you have the mother and she takes her egg and she takes the nuclear DNA out. So not the mitochondrial, just the nuclear DNA, which what will give rise to the baby, right? Nuclear DNA of the mother meets with nuclear DNA from the father. You get fertilization. So they take that and they put it into an egg from another mother, from another mother. Mm. And uh, that contains the mitochondrial DNA, but no nuclear DNA. So, so you have the nuclear DNA from mom one mitochondrial DNA from mom too, and then 
you know, sperm or you have the other nuclear DNA from the parent. So you get these three that come together. And what happens is you get fertilization from both parents, right? But you have the mitochondria of another woman or another mother. And so that's why they're calling it a three-parent, you know, whatever, uh, three-parent gene therapy. I don't know. Yosa's right. It's really not that exact, but it is. And so there's a lot of controversy here just because it's, you know, controversial. Three parents and one baby. Oh, my God. It's going to be like this mutated kid. Like, that's what people are making it sound like. It's not really like that. I think more of the concern is that we don't know what will happen in terms of rejection with this mitochondria. There's There's a lot of unknowns in the science still. And so I think that's where the scientists are trying to put the brake on this, and the scientists tend to, and say, hey, we want to make sure this is safe. I know Yo's Paul Knopfler, who does, uh, who has a lab out west and does an, uh, the blog IPSL.com, he took a pretty strong stance on this. Um, um, you can read about it on IPSL.com. I don't think he's really f- – I think he's kind of for it, but I think he's, he's really hesitant and, and wants to caution uh, so, uh, you know, you could, there's both sides. I don't really have a side. I mean, if it's going to help, great. It's, it just seems a little bit, uh, I'm, I'm definitely you know. for it. I, I think for some of these parents who, you know, want to have children and not pass on this mutation, this is a you know, this is life changing for them. And we should say it passed like the UK's equivalent of the house and it still has to go to the upper chamber the house of lords or something like that it's it's different uh so it passed their house but not their senate so uh it hasn't been yeah, fully it's still got yet. some to go but it's on the first step that way and actually now the u.s is like looking into measures here to try to see if they should be doing the same thing here so we'll see where that i saw susan solomon put out a statement to say please contact the government to help push it through i know that new york stem cell foundation would would benefit from relaxed uh, legislation on this because they have Dieter there. Dieter does a lot of nuclear transfer and mitochondrial things. So, yeah. so I can see how that would help them. Okay. So next thing is, I thought this was cool. And of course, now my article is telling me I need, I need a, a subscription. So I can't really read it all to you, but this I saw, this is, this is a cell therapy. It's a company, a biotech company in the UK, uh, raises a record breaking crowdfunding for a stem cell drug. So they have this drug in their pipeline and they need money. So they use Crowdcube, which is like a crowdfunding re- website mm-hmm. for people to like put money, invest in their product. And they raise like over a million dollars and like help to evaluate the company through like a whole bunch of like crowdfunding. So like this is like a new way, you know, when you think of getting people to invest in your product, this is a crowdsourcing initiative to get like capital to to take your product to the next step. I thought that was interesting. Well, it's like when Zach Braff uh, crowdsourced his his last movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you can crowdsource for every, anything nowadays. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, yo, so we talked about stem cells for penises and stem cells for vaginas, right? So we've gone to the next step here. This is uh, stem cells for breast augmentation. I saw that. So, My friend sent that to yeah, me. This is Dr. Ray, better known as Dr. 90210, uh-huh. right? And he told the ever-credible TMZ <laughs> yesterday about this new rage in breast augmentation, and it can also make you thinner. And that's by taking fat stem cells, isolating your stem cells from fat, and putting them back into your boobs. Wow. So this is, this is the new way that they're augmenting uh, breasts and making you thin at the same time. Stem wow. cells, man. Everyone's getting on the bandwagon. Yeah, I thought it was a joke when I first saw it, and I guess it kind of is still. I don't know. TMZ? <laughs> I mean, who is this guy? I, I don't know. Uh, I'll believe it when Robert Lanza is doing it, right? Yeah, right. I don't know what the hell's going on. It's bizarre. So then there's this thing with Gordie Howe. Did you see this guy? He's like a Mr. Hockey, one of the greatest NHL players of all time. And he had a stroke. Uh, He's 86, and he had a stroke, and he was just getting really – he was getting worse. And so 
Later that month, a company called Stem Medica, I guess, got in touch with them. They're San Diego-based manufacturer of these allogeneic adult stem cells. And uh, stem cells that come from a donor rather than an embryo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he went down to Mexico, Gordy Howe, and received treatment. So he received, like, so neural stem cells injected into the spinal canal on day one and then mesenchymal cells by intravenous infusion on day two. Um so, like, we don't know, like, what happened, like, after that, but apparently, like, he's, like, a million times better. Get out. Like, walking walking with minimal effort for the first time. He was conversing comfortably. He was walking unaided, taking part in helping out with daily household chores. Um, so, like, now he's become, like, this face of what could, you know, stem cell trans- these therapies could work, right? I know Keith Olbermann was talking about this. And him and Paul Knopfler actually had like a Twitter back and forth about really? how Paul was like, Paul, yeah, Paul was like, uh, you know, hey, hey, you know, hey, Olbermann, like this doesn't mean that these things are safe, you know, just because one guy is right. better. And like Olbermann like deleted him from his Twitter account. He, like, <laughs> and Paul was like, what the heck was that? Like, <laughs> I can't great. talk to Keith Olbermann. He deletes me from his account. You can look at that at IPSSalt.com. It's a funny exchange. Anyway, so Gordy Howe's better, and good for him, but this doesn't lead – this doesn't put any credence into these offshore stem cell transplants. I mean, for every one person that gets better, there's hundreds of stories of people that die and get worse. So, and it could be a placebo uh, effect. You never know. Yeah, you don't know what it's going on there. So anyway, Gordy Howe apparently is doing a lot better. Um there is this um, stem cells cure for hope diabetes at University of Otago. This is in Canada. They are starting a clinical trial for cure for type 1 diabetes. Uh, this is using um, uh, bone marrow cells that they say if they inject bone marrow, the cells appear to be able to turn off the autoimmune response that caused type 1, type 1 diabetes. That mm-hmm. seems like a very uh, grandiose statement, but uh, they say they can do it, so uh, they're going to go to clinical trial. Uh, this panel passes. This is funny. I don't know what's going on in Oklahoma, Joseph, with stem cell research, but uh, in Oklahoma, they uh, bill to further restrict abortion in Oklahoma and another to make embryonic stem cell research illegal, clear to House Committee on Wednesday. So what? if this passes in Oklahoma, it will be illegal to do stem cell research. Oh, and these man. people are just talk really about take stuck a step on backwards. stupid. Oh my gosh, that's it's just so dumb. Yeah. Um, let me keep moving because I got a couple things real quick. Uh, there was a paper in Cell Stem Cell by Vivian Tabar's group, uh, which I thought was a really cool paper. And they were looking at how you can use stem cells to understand like, and fix radiation. So when cancer patients get radiation, they experience a lot of cognitive problems and learning deficit. And so what Vivian's group is they, they made oligodendrocytes. They're remyelinating cells that get killed during radiation. And what they see is that they're able to – uh, put them in after exposed to radiation and help repair some of the radiation injury. So it might be a, a good approach where people have to go under intense radiation and uh, cognitive decline from that, that it might be able to um, help with that. So yeah. that's Vivian congrats, Tabar's lab. And congrats to Jingwa and Tamara. Yeah, it was a great – she's got a, having a good year. Uh, CDI announced that they, were, they uh, manufactured CGMP HLA super donor stem cell lines. So these lines – uh, will match 19% of the U.S. population, and their goal is to get over 95% lines, uh, 95% HLA coverage. So, uh, there, it's a way to, uh, you know, help make their uh, cells more broad for transplant therapies. Real quick, stem cell reports is a cool paper about um, um, acellular lung scaffolds that direct differentiation of endoderm to functional airway cells. That's in Martin Post Lab stem cell reports. And then I just want to close right before we go to Lorenz with. 
once again, we're going to talk about this, but there was uh, the Nature Biotech Optogenetics paper. I just want to get, uh, frame it a bit. Uh, it's uh, by Julius Steinbeck. Yosef's uh, on the author line, and it's Optogenetics Enables Functional Analysis of Human Embryonic Stem Cell Derived Graphs in a Parkinson's Disease Model. And we're going to talk about that right now with our guest. Okay, Chris, why don't you bring on our guest? Thanks, Yos. Um, so this is really, it's really great to have uh, our guest here, uh, Dr. Lorenz Studer, coming on. In the world of academic pedigrees, I guess Lorenz could be like my academic dad, I mean, or grandfather. I think you prefer <laughs> I call him my academic dad. Dad. Um, but um, so let me give a proper introduction to Dr. Studer. He's the founding director of the Sloan Kettering Cancer Center for Stem Cell Biology and a member in the Developmental Biology Program in the Department of Neurosurgery and Professor of Neuroscience at Weill Cornell. And so Lorenz is really, uh, he's a native of Switzerland, did his training there, and then um, came to the States to pursue his research interests at the NIH, Bethesda, where he worked in the lab of Ron Mackay. And there, it was around 1998, he was really the first to demonstrate that the transplantation of dopamine-producing cells, we talk a lot about dopamine on the show, particularly in the world of Parkinson's, um, so dopamine cells that are generated in culture can improve these uh, symptoms of Parkinsonian rats. Yes, there are Parkinsonian rats. And so then in 2000, Dr. Studer moved to New York. He started his own research program there at Sloan Kettering with a focus on stem cells and brain repair and really contributed early uh, with a lot of work in, on the in vitro der- derivation of these midbrain dopaminergic neurons from embryonic stem cells. And there's mouse nuclear transfer ES cells. Um, you know, and, and his really his recent work is increasingly focusing on human cells, IPS cells, how to, how to model brain disease in the dish, and just really at the forefront of neurological disease modeling uh, using stem cells. So, Lorenz, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Great. Thanks, Sibiri. Thanks so much for the introduction. Yeah, no problem. So, uh, give, you know, um, Yosef and I obviously uh, know your stem cell story, but I, I want to put that, you know, your current work in context. So tell everyone a little bit how you got into sure. stem cells, really, why they fascinated you, why you went down that road. No, I mean, it really started quite quite a long time ago. Basically, this the idea, the idea that you're probably going to come back to throughout this discussion is really, can we find a cell therapy for Parkinson's disease? So when I was a medical student, I decided that I want to become a doctor or basically go down more uh, a scientific route. And there was a time really when, Primarily in Sweden, the idea came up of doing fetal grafting. And so we actually, in Switzerland, decided very quickly, I was still again a young med student, to go all the way from actually just discussing the idea to, to doing the first clinical trial in Switzerland doing fetal tissue grafting. It was like like the early 90s. And during doing, doing that work, it became clear when you actually tried to translate that, how difficult it's going to be to use fetal tissue, not only the ethical issues, but practically. And so we really became immediately clear to me that if this is ever going to be an approach that you can use for thousands of people, you really need to have a renewable cell source. And I remember still at that time I read, because there were two cell papers, um, I think one was from Ron's lab, Ron McKay's lab, and one was from, I think, Evan Snyder and Connie Sepko on neurostem cells. And immediately clicked for me that neurostem cells would be the way to go and moved and basically the NIH trying to do that. And from there, then really things moved on, no? trying to really Get neurostem cells to behave, turning into dopamine neurons, which somewhat work, but only with limitations, and then really getting into the pluripotent field. And really, that was then kind of the big step. You now, when you realized that there were human embryonic stem cells available, that you can indeed basically make cells more and more precisely, at least in a mouse. And then it sounded like everything would be 
the path would be paved and I basically take that forward towards all the way maybe to cell therapy like where I started. Then really the detour started when I became a PI and I wanted to translate that. I was all excited doing that and looked really great. I did it in all different ways. Not only embryonic stem cells, we worked with what's called nuclear transfer ear cells. This is the stolly way of reprogramming cells. That's before IPS. So it was really an exciting time. We got the dopamine cells, got them in the mouse, which was great. The problem was whenever we tried to do that in human cells, things failed quite miserably. Even so we could grow the cells in a dish, we really couldn't do it in a few And that was really, I think, a major challenge for many, many years. And, and again, it took us nearly, I would say, about 10 years since then before we really have something that we think is now worth translating. Now, the good part of really taking us so long to figure out how it really works is I got the chance to obviously get very deep into many other aspects of stem cell research, all the way from disease modeling to the more hardcore developmental biology to, to basically applying stem cells to a whole variety of conditions. And I think that's something I clearly enjoyed. And it's always fun to really come back because, again, it's now nearly 20 years since we did those things, or actually more than 20 years when we started in Switzerland. Right. And so the goal, obviously, now is to really benefit from that time and really have hopefully a superior product to go back to patients. So I can, Lorenz, I never asked you this. I mean, was it something just in medical school that caught your attention? Is that why you, why you, why you gravitated towards dopamine and the midbrain and things, or is there a personal thing with Parkinson's or no? I mean, it's just kind of. No, it was really, I mean, I was was kind of joke more or less that I found, shouldn't say that, no, but Parkinson's maybe not so interesting, (laughs) no, because it's just a motor disease. You have a drug, you put it in and it kind of didn't get me as excited as maybe. Alzheimer's is important. I was very interested in psychiatric diseases. I was definitely interested in neuroscience. But then this idea of the fact that you can take cells and, and graft them into a brain, I find absolutely fascinating. So kind of the idea of what happens to those cells. Do they connect? How would they basically influence maybe cognitive functions? And Parkinson's was just the model to really try that all the way. And so that really got me very, very excited and kind of made me then go down to either the basic science route. I was still thinking, no, you want to become neurologists, psychiatrists, all kinds of things. And, but then kind of, it was clear to me that there's so much to do and so much excitement that I definitely wanted to explore that further. Yeah. yeah, I often tell people with Parkin, you know, with the, who, are new, who aren't familiar with what we're trying to do, that out of 100 billion neurons, we're trying to make about 100,000. So that's like if you had a million dollar mortgage, we're trying to replace $1 in the brain. So it's, 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 you know, it's ripe for, for, you know, this sort of, uh, cell therapy using stem cells. But, um, yeah, so that's great. Uh, so obviously, uh, Chris and I worked in the lab and, um, since then there's been a, a bunch of work. I think it's, you know, I, I like to give the timeline as uh studuction with the dual SMAD inhibition chambers at all paper. And then- yeah, so for, so I guess for everyone out there who's not, who's not really hardcore into it, I mean, that, that was just a, 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 a new way to make neur- neural cells from, from pluripotent cells it was a you- very efficient, defined way uh, to do that, yeah, which greatly it- enhanced everyone's project and lives because it just made made a much more reliable recipe to cook with yeah um, I remember right, right? Yeah. Yos, i mean exactly. it, was, it was just more reliable recipe because the recipe we were using involved other cooks you know we had these feeder cells and you know Noggin. it was very variable so so yeah so stew really just kind of standardized the the recipe and then 
from that, everything just kind of went bang, bang, you know? Yeah, I remember there was one ISSCR conference that I went to. It was my first one, and people were asking me, oh, is Lorenz here? Because they knew I was from your lab, and you weren't there that year. And I was like, yeah, every other poster, because it seemed like everybody had switched from noggin-based or feeder-based neural induction, which is quite expensive to use these recombinant materials to small molecules that were highly efficient. And everybody was using that to differentiate uh, human ES cells into neurons. But then Chris's paper came along and that generated the floor plate. And then Crick's et al. with uh, generating uh, highly efficient generation of dopamine neurons. And now we're at the stage where uh, I guess you're, you know, I know that you're working on getting these into people. But before we get into that, um, we have to talk about the latest paper, which is this Nature Biotech paper, which is the main reason why we wanted to bring you on. So um, why don't you uh, introduce the results to the audience as to what this story is all about? Sure. I think that's, again, uh, I think a very interesting story because I think it has broader implication for people who want to do cell therapy in general. It's in Parkinson's disease, but also in many other contexts. Now, we always ask ourselves, really, how do the cells do it? So how do they fix the behavioral deficit, and everyone has the favorite ideas, and we really think that the cell is going to properly integrate, connect, make all the synapses. Other people say maybe you just secrete certain factors, hormones, or you modulate the immune system. There are all these different ideas, and in fact, people have tried all kinds of cell types. And now at the stage, now we, we want to go in, into people, we really want to know how that truly works. And for me, I think it's very fundamentally important, because if you don't know how something works, you cannot really optimize it. You can always pray, put cells in, hope it works, but I really want to know how things work. I want to define the cell type that works best, and I want to know how it works. The question is really, how do you do that? And so that really was, I was very fortunate that I had basically a postdoc coming actually from Oliver Brüssel's lab, Julius Steinbeck, that joined my lab a couple of years ago, and he had exactly that question. And so he asked, how can we really figure out in a very systematic way, how those cells work once they are in the brain, not just in a dish, but once they are in the brain. And so basically he explored this idea that you can actually use a technique which is called optogenetics. And so what that is, is a technique where you have nerve cells that fire, but you can actually control where the cell fires with light. So you can either have certain ways to make the cells fire as fast as you want with a laser, or you can completely silence a nerve cell whenever you shine light on it. And so the different versions of this technique, and basically what it is, it's a modified protein, either a channel that basically is important for ions, and without going into all the technical details, the conclusion is you can basically remote control your neurons now with light. And so the idea was now, that's a technique that has already been widely used in neuroscience. In fact, I think it caused many revolutions in neuroscience to really understand now how individual nerve cells in the brain work, because now you can like in a mouse, you knock out the gene, you can knock out the firing of a neuron, a very specific neuron. And so this technique has been used very, very widely in neuroscience and got very interesting insights, but it hadn't really been used in this context, at least not in very, very little in the context of stem cell biology. And so the idea was now that you can actually build the exact same cell that you want to use in the patient, same protocol, the same basic cell line, but what you do different, you put in a switch. And it's like an off switch. So whenever you now shine light on this cell, otherwise exactly the same you want to use clinically, the cell is off, stops firing. So you can do that not only in a dish, but Julius also could do that after he transplanted the cells into an animal in vivo. 
So now you have an animal that has Parkinsonian symptoms. So that means it has certain movement problems that somewhat mimicking what happens in Parkinson's disease, and you can measure that. So we know now, again, from what you want to do clinically, you wait four or five months, and our human cells generated in a dish, they can basically, quote, cure or at least rescue those movement deficits. So that's great. So the question was now, if we do that, but now we have in those neurons that switch, can we now test what happens in those nerve cells once you shut them off? And so the question was, again, if the nerve cell is just there to basically provide some factors to improve the remaining dopamine nerve cells in the brain, not much would happen because you just shut off the, the, the nerve activity, nothing else. But if it's truly integrated in the network and the dopamine is produced whenever uh, basically the cell fires, once you shut off the firing, dopamine should be gone, activity should be gone. And that's exactly what we tried to do and what we could do. So you have an animal now that's basically rescued, took five months, and as soon, within a minute, after you now shine light onto those crafts, you can do that with a laser that's basically basically connected to, to, to the brain. As soon as you shine light, basically the animal is again as Parkinsonian as it was five months ago. And so that was quite the remarkable finding. So, because sorry, Lorenz, you said within a minute, very quick? Like, within a minute. Wow, that's so crazy. And so that means basically that you need constant activity of your graft nerve cells to basically assure that the animal is really recovered. And so that really told us, at least that we know these nerve cells have to fire. And again, we did many other experiments in the show that it's actually the dopamine, not only just firing, but it's actually then the dopamine that achieves that. And Julius went then even further with some collaborators at Columbia, particularly Eugene Mosharov. He then basically was able to show that you can actually then look how they connect in the brain. And again, for the non-neuroscientists in the audience, maybe they're complicated, but the way these dopamine nerve cells function is really that they modulate the flow of nerve signals in the brain. So usually you have a region in the brain is called the cortex that innervates a cell in the striatum. So that's a well-known synapse, very important for movement. But this synapse is modulated, so the activity of how well it fires is modulated by those dopamine nerve cells. And so you could actually now test that directly so we could stimulate the cells coming from those cortical regions record from the normal striatal cell and do that now in the presence or absence of light. So we switch off the graft cell. And we could indeed show that now those cells that get the cortical signal, they get modulated by our graft. And that was again very exciting because that took it one step further, saying it's not only just dopamine, but the way the dopamine hooks up seems to be very, very similar to what the normal dopamine does from a normally normal endogenous neurons in a healthy animal. And so, again, that gives us, I think, a lot of confidence that the neurons we create in a dish are really remarkably similar in many ways of what we expect from a normal dopamine neuron. And therefore, we can hopefully expect benefits that are better than just releasing dopamine diffusely in the brain. And I think, again, that gives us, I think, further motivation to really move that forward. But equally important, I think it gives now a platform where many people in the field can study the same question in their system. For example, I think of questions like in the spinal cord injury, where now really exciting studies show that you can put new neurons in, in spinal cord injury lesions, and the claim is that they can relay the signal through the damaged, of, damaged spinal cord. So if you can do that and show that animal improves, you could do the exact same experiment, shutting off the grafted neurons, and see where that takes away the function. And again, the, 
there are obviously many alternative ways how in that case the cells could work. But, but I think it's going to be a general paradigm for many, many models that involve nerve cells to really figure out how your graft works. Is it really the, the way you think? And is it, do you have the right composition of cells to really achieve what you want to achieve? Yeah, I mean, that, you know, there's, for the audience out there, there's, there's a line of, uh, a, there's a logic and a, and a theory that, you know, so Lorenz is talking about putting back this actual cell that dies in Parkinson's. But some, some people's idea was, well, what do you need that actual cell for? We can just create something that secretes dopamine, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be the neuron. It could be a, a bead, a sponge, something that's going to secrete the neurotransmitter or the chemical that's lost. But to, to that side, and this is, goes along with what you found, to that side, there's really no, there's no regulatory mechanism really. It's just, a, it's just something dumping, dumping, dumping stuff. What you're telling me then and what you're telling us is that your cells or these cells actually integrate into the higher level networks of the brain in such that, you know, that regulation, it becomes now part of the regulatory loop. So you would, I don't know, Lorenz, if you hypothesize you have evidence of this, that, that if there was something going wrong that maybe was putting too much dopamine out, the brain might be able to control and regulate that. Is that, is that now what you're yeah, thinking? Yeah, exactly. There's actually quite a bit of evidence that that's the case. So if you think about the drug where you want to do a dose response, you have to be very careful that you don't overdose your, your, your drug. We think in the case of dopamine neurons, they actually have a high level of self-regulation. And again, that obviously eventually needs to be tested in people. But I think if you have the right cells and not, again, contaminating cells that could cause problems, I think if you have the right cells, you have a lot of self-regulation because you really have integration to the network and you have actually regulation of the dopamine machinery in those cells. Yeah, and I, I, you know, just this technology is amazing. If you think about it, first we took GFP from the jellyfish and made cells glow green and did all this amazing work. And now we're taking these channel rhodopsins from green algae out of the ocean again and using them to modulate neuronal firing and, and then do that in the brain of an actual mammal and show that these human ES derived dopamine neurons can be, you know, turned on and turned off in vivo. I mean, it's just, it, I think it's just the coolest technology. So it really is cool. It also tells me, I mean, for, you know, the brain isn't really, well, I don't know so much now, but it was perceived as a very, I don't know, plastic and something admissible place where you can put things and they'd be able to spread and grow and integrate and things like I always, when I would think of the brain and the adult brain setup, you know, you always talk when you turn 21, your neurons start to die and your neuron goes away. There's no repair of the brain. But this, this data really, you know, tells us that, Hey, and if you put the right cell back in the right place, it can figure it out. It knows, it remembers, it can grab and hook up. And that's, that's incredible. And that's a huge step forward because I think, there's always an element to cell transplantation. What's going to happen in the brain once you put them there? And this is a really clear evidence that they remember, at least, you know, Lorenzo. And I don't know if there's any other controls done with other neurons. This is a new technology. If you put the wrong cells, what happens? I mean, do, do, do they go yeah. there? Do they die? You know, I mean, I, I, that I don't know. No, I mean, I think this, these are some of the experiments we want to do. In fact, even today, even with the best techniques, our graphs are not pure. And so what you want to do is really what each cell type contributes, and sure. again, which cells actually contribute positively, and which cells could cause problems. And, and again, I think what's the key for us, at least in our nearly philosophical approach you know, to cell therapy, is that the key thing is to make the right cell. Right. Because the cell is really, in this case, smart and has a lot of information, knows how to hook up. And there is also, on the other side, there's quite a bit of evidence that even in an adult brain, some of the signaling molecules are still there to basically receive the, the, 
the basic the response from from the right neurons. So, for example, some netrins, some aphorins, some of them are still there that are very similar to those that you had during development, not at the same levels, but apparently sufficient for our neurons to really, for example, stick to the striatum and not go to other regions. Right. So it's really, really, really awesome. Um, uh, I just quickly for the audience who might be interested, uh, Lorenz, has there been any advance in the field of the cause of Parkinson's? I mean, a lot of people out there. Uh, that I talk to always ask me what what really causes it? Why is just that one cell? So anything on the on, in the in the research front that for the etiologies and really the origins of, of what's going on in there? Anything new? Yeah, I'm not sure what is really that I'm much not- new. Obviously, the, the, the main trend really in the field is that people think of it as a protein aggregation disease. I mean, it's controversial. Still a bit controversial. Not everyone subscribes to that, but in many neurodegenerative diseases, there's now evidence that you have at least one key protein aggregating, and in Parkinson's, it's alpha-synuclein, and that clearly seems to be part of the, the disease, not only in cases where you have, for example, genetic change in the alpha-synuclein gene, which is actually quite rare, but even in sporadic cases where you get accumulation. And again, obviously, some of you might know that alpha-synuclein is the main component of Lewy bodies, which are these pathological changes that you find in the brain of people with Parkinson's. But again, then how you get from there to the disease and how you basically kill dopamine neurons quite selectively right. and what, that that's always the case or that there are other forms of parking that that's not the case that I think nobody knows knows truly exactly but the main idea is that subsequently to really the protein aggregation a number of key features like in particular the mitochondria that dysfunction right. uh, and the number of other processes that probably ultimately lead to the death of the neuron. Yeah, so it's still a black box for at least 90% of the cases out there. So um, transitioning now from the Nature Biotech paper, and congratulations to Julius Steinbeck. Um, let's transition to the new project. Well, not the new project, the major project that's going on. Uh, so you, you got a, uh, what was it, in 2012 or 2013, a grant from the New York State. Uh, what's the STEM stand for? Is it just for stem cells? Nice I, I think it's, I think the, it's, it's the NICE STEM, the New York STEM <laughs> initiative. Yes. STEM it's cell. a STEM cell board. <laughs> it's not STEM like science, technology, yeah. education, yeah, STEM. Yeah. STEM are STEM, STEM cell. To actually generate uh, human ES-derived dopamine neurons for grafting into patients, essentially. So this is a this is you know huge in terms of uh, moving the field forward into the clinic. Um, and I know Chris mentioned he wanted to to, to dive into this. So why, why don't you uh, just give us an overview and some of the challenges and you know where we stand with that? Yeah, this is really taking the recipe out of the house and putting it into the uh, into the mess hall and to cook <laughs> for hundreds of thousands. So tell us about that experience, Lorenz. How it's going? Yeah, no, I mean it's definitely not a not a very simple experience. I was <laughs> a lot of full of surprises what you really cook at the end. Of. <laughs> but so, so I mean the main thing is obviously once you want to go. To, to people, you need to do that under completely different conditions that would be allowable by the FDA to really move forward as a product. It's no longer just making basically cells for a paper. You actually make them as a product for a patient. And so there are a lot of, of challenges how you can do that with regard to reagents to use, with regard to the facilities to use. So you need to have a multidisciplinary team. So we have a team of basically neurologists, neurosurgeons, cell specialists, monkey specialists, obviously stem cell biologists, and so on, to really get all aspects covered. And what you need to do is at each of those levels, you need to work out all the individual problems. For example, again, you need to figure out 
how you can now make big banks of cells that would be made in a way that they can be used clinically. And so that, that is, again, a completely different process. You cannot just take the first bank that you have in your lab, but you need to make a so-called clinical grade or current GMP-grade uh, cell bank to really then, uh, under very standardized conditions, make large lots of those cells. And the way we want to move that forward is, again, that we eventually going to have, we already have now, basically, big clinical-grade cell banks of human ear cells. We have a single human ear cell line. And we're going to make large banks of dopamine neurons that we're going to freeze. And we're going to make that, that if, like, I think Yosef mentioned the numbers. Now, in, in humans, you have only about half a million dopamine neurons if you don't have Parkinson's disease on one side of your brain. So it's not a big number. Uh, but we're going to have banks of basically one to two billion dopamine neurons that we're going to produce in such a way. And we need to do that, again, under highly controlled condition in a clinical-grade facility. And again, what happens if you try to do that? It sounds very easy. You know, you just go to a different facility. You use a bunch of different reagents. <laughs> what really happens is that the protocol shifts. Mm-hmm. So you work on a protocol, I told you, for 10 years now before we had eventually from going from from from, from uh, initially, I guess, Stuart to Chris's protocol and eventually to Sonia's protocol. And so it went quite quickly. But once you start putting that on the conditions where you want to use media that are really much more standardized, everything shifts. Right. And so we had to kind of readjust the conditions of all our patterning factors and so on to do that. And it was actually a process, I think, that I didn't expect to be taking that long. Another thing really that took a while is to figure out how you can freeze neurons. When I grew up, <laughs> we kind of thought you can really, neurons are so difficult, they have processes and stuff, you really cannot freeze them. But we have now pretty good techniques where at least young neurons are already no longer dividing, so they are what's called post-mitotic. They can be frozen, thawed, and crafted. And that's quite exciting because people are worried now that talking about stem cell therapy, you might cause tumors or have all right. kinds of complications. But if you actually know that your product is already post-mitotic, the chance of a tumor is nearly nil, at least. We still have to convince the FDA of that. Sure. Mm. But, but I think <laughs> it's clearly a much, a much, it's an easier sell, maybe. Yeah. Class to go. And so this was again a big step to really get that to work. And then it goes on and on. Then you need to show that once you create something you're happy with in addition, you can do that again and again and again. That this still works in the animals. And again, there were also some surprises when we switched from one medium to maintain the ESLs to another acting shifted again. And so that I think the most difficult part was really to, in a reasonably efficient way, to adapt those protocols. And in hindsight, now we know, we understand, oh, clearly that's why yeah, we had to do A, B, C, and it makes sure. perfect sense. But at the beginning, I think that was quite a learning process. And now we're about some like one and a half years into a four-year project. And so now come the next major steps. Now, not only going to the gym, doing this, this in the GMP facility, but making the really large banks that you can then recreate all the preclinical data again. So preclinical data, meaning you put them again into, into new drugs, so you put them again into monkeys, show that those cells still work now after they are produced in large scale. And then having basically a product frozen that you can ultimately use in patients. And so again, there's many, many aspects that are challenging. And clearly one thing that I had to learn is not only again, how to adjust things to the new protocol, but to deal with all the various regulations. And so again, some, sometimes it's much more complicated things. You never thought about that you should actually constituting the production. Sometimes it's actually maybe at least for a phase one study simpler than I pro- uh, expected. For example, when you went in, we saw maybe you need to have all completely human-derived product. You couldn't have any growth factor that had, I don't know, a little bit of PSA or anything like that. But it turns out you can actually, if you properly qualify reagents, 
there are some things that you can have that are not absolutely uh, basically animal free. So, so there are some tricks and tweaks that you learn over time. What you really can do if you properly qualify it, and so you need to find the path that works for your product to move forward. But obviously, the ultimate goal is if you just go go beyond just simply a phase one study, you want to eventually have an absolute fully defined product. And that's again something you kind of learn that you kind of need to fight your choose your battles you're going to fight. So right. you need to fight now your battle to make a product that you can get into phase one study, hopefully show some uh, preliminary, uh, not only safety study, but some early evidence that actually it works. And then you need to make it in a way that you think eventually you can scale it up as a real product that could actually be approved for treating people. Mm. And that's, again, actually a slightly different set of regulations. So the FDA is much more concerned when you actually then want to have a product that ultimately is going to be on the more or less on the free market for right. doctors to use. And so I think that's yet going to be another battle, but we kind of fight it, kind of a, we make kind of a compromise. Now we think about what we need in the future, and we try to get very, very close, but we're not completely neurotic to try already at this stage to be at that level of regulation, because that would take too long to really translate work. So, Torrens, I guess tell everybody out there uh, when you so this grant is a grant to really fund a lot of preclinical work that gets the gets the product to a point where you can file what they call an IND to the FDA. So, just explain to everybody at that point when you're done with this grant, right? What will you have here, and what would be the next step? Sure. I mean, so we are already starting to think about the next step now because clearly you need to plan ahead. Sure. As I said, we are about. Now, in the second year of a four-year project, so we're thinking about two years, if things go well, a little bit more than two years, we will have the IND and we'll basically now be ready to have the permission to do this phase one study. But to do the phase one study, we need, again, support for actually clinical trial. Right. So that's what we are currently right. trying to talk to various sources to try right. to raise money, that we actually can take that to an actual clinical trial. And you need to think about all those things now because... The FDA already requires you, even though you might not have the money, <laughs> but obviously for an IND, you need sure. to exactly describe your protocol, what patients you're going to use and what you're going to test, how long you're going to follow them and so on. That needs to be all there. But practically, we still need to basically both raise the funds and, and decide on some of the details of the clinical yeah. trial. Is, is the idea, to, I guess, for the first patients, would it be the more worse off patients or the the younger one? I, I'm not sure where the bar is to start with yeah. this. No, that's a very good question. And I think we are struggling with that a little bit because we think from a scientific perspective, probably earlier would be better. Right. Sure. Because we have even in the animal studies, we didn't go on that in, from your newspaper, but there's a number of evidence that grafts probably have a trophic effect on the brain too, meaning the cells that they innervate, they also protect them. Mm. And so I think that's something we are quite excited as yet another potential mechanism to justify why grafts are really something truly exciting. And so we would rather do that early before cells have already degenerated. But on the other hand, you, it's a first-in-man therapy, and so you're not going to be allowed to go a patient that is perfectly fine. Yeah. So you have to have a compromise. You don't want to go to a really late patient that don't even respond to dopamine therapy, but you also can not go to the very early stage patient. So it's probably going to be a patient that's maybe five years into the disease, starting to have certain problems that cannot perfectly control with medication. And so at that stage, you, you maybe can offer something that, that, that will be beneficial and hopefully long-lasting in those people. But again, that's what you currently think, and we need to 
get then the final approval to really get the go-ahead for that because it's really an ethical question. If you sure. have a, a new therapy that's still untested, we are excited. Now we think it's going to work great because we are basically invested in it, but we yeah. are very biased. Yeah. And so, but for a patient, obviously, and ourselves, we know you can really not promise. We don't know. That's why you do these trials. And the initial study is safety studies. So can you have someone exposed to a safety risk who is still doing perfectly fine with, it, with, with his or her Parkinson's? And that would be basically an ethical concern. You really would have to have a good argument why you want to do that. And I think that's why you're going to be somewhere in the middle. So some real rationale why they need medically something in addition, but not a very late stage. Well, so I'm, I'm looking at the time, Joseph. What are we at? Like we have almost a half 32 hour, Thirty-two right? minutes, yeah. So um, I guess we should we can just end this the interview here. Um, everybody out there, if you're have, if you're interested in this interview and you want to learn more about uh, Parkinson's or, or Lorenz's work, you can find about all the work online. I'm sure you can use Google nowadays. Everyone knows how to do it. You can look up Lorenz. You can read his work and 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 um, you know just just really learn about it. Things are really happening in the stem cell field. This is an example of. Of, of an idea, especially for Lorenz, it's so cool, Lorenz, coming full circle, like you said, he's starting out really young, getting into this when something was really cool, a clinical trial, you know, they were going to have it then, and then how your career, like, kind of took a turn, and it came back to the same place where you are now, getting ready for a clinical trial for Parkinson's, so um, thank you so much for this, uh, for the time here, um, it's really great, great talking no, with it's you. Fun. Thanks so much. And so uh, I know we asked you if uh, you could stay on for a rant, which uh, sometimes we do uh, with the guests, so uh, do you think I you... love that Lorenz is going to rant with us real <laughs> quick right now, I'm so excited. What's, <laughs> Joseph good. always gives me a good topic for a rant, let's see, yes, what yeah, do we got? Yeah, so uh, today I'm going <laughs> to rant about uh, Facebook requests to play games like candy crush and all these games first of all do people still play candy crush still by the yes way? yes and angry birds all those games but like candy crush is the one that facebook seems to always want to ask me to play and or this new one dragon saga or something dragon's I, one i get i get it from gab song yeah, uh, gab song was a Gab Song was in Lorenz's lab when we were all together. So, Gab Song, if you're listening, stop sending me invites for Dragon Wars. Or I don't want to play. Uh, but I don't know how to shut them off. And so, I've asked somebody, and they tell me it's very simple. But I have yet to figure it out. I don't understand how to shut these things off. I don't get it. Yeah, you go to the notifications, and then you click on the little box on the right. It's a little. But there's so X, many boxes. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just, I don't know. Do you get these, Lorenz? I know you're on Facebook. Yeah, no, 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 no I get them, actually. I think also some of them from Gapsang. <laughs> <laughs> he he caused a lot of productivity losses. <laughs> yeah, he does. He definitely does. But I, I basically... Promptly ignore them, pretty much. Yeah, that's when I'm always shutting them off, and I don't know uh, how certain games. Maybe they pay. Faith, I don't know how they get access like like that, or or I guess maybe you know what it is. People tell me that to advance themselves in the games, if you share it on Facebook, you'll get certain things that allows you to move to the next level. So people are just blindly for their own sake sharing stuff with me and i don't really don't care about dragon wars or, or, or so. although i will I, I did get addicted to candy crush for a little while you did? i had a prompt i had to end that oh I had to man end it quick that's a deep, 
dark it would have been secret. A mind suck. I, 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 can't, I, that's good to know. I didn't know you got sucked into it. Uh, <laughs> I, it's yeah, it's the last thing I need to be doing is playing Candy Crush. But I, uh, yeah, so I for felt... everyone out there, we got three people here. Stop sending us your <laughs> invites for the games. Um, but I agree, Yos. It's a rant-worthy subject. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Lorenz. It's uh, been oh. great. Sort of like the culmination for uh, this podcast. It probably wouldn't have been done if it weren't for you. Uh, you know, taking us into your lab and uh, teaching us and fostering our work. So uh, thank you for... Yeah, it's definitely fun to see how it develops. You yeah. Know? yeah, it's been this a lot. New guys. It feels, a... feels kind of funny, you know? <laughs> you, guys thought, you know what I said, Lorenz? You know this. I said, if there's anyone to do a podcast, me and Yosef would be a good tandem. <laughs> <laughs> you never know what happens. If you uh, <laughs> I just say what you say. All right, have a good night, Lorenz. Thank, right. Lorenz. Thanks, Thanks so, much. so much. Take, Take care. care. Okay. Yeah.